This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open God's word together uh, this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on this study uh, this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come together today and just study your word, to be refreshed and encouraged by your word that it is through your word that God the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and edifies us, and he is the one who uses your word in our minds and our thinking to fortify our souls, to be able to face and handle all of the vicissitudes of life. And, Father, we thank you that we can rely upon you, and you are indeed the only thing that is unchangeable, the only thing dependable in our lives, the only thing that we can exclusively rely on, and we trust you as we walk daily with you. Help us to understand the significance of all these passages we're studying, that we might see the uh, this glorious plan, understand how it impacts the way we should think about ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to... Uh, uh, Psalm 110, we'll start there, but I'll give you a little bit of a review as we go along uh, so that you can understand what's going on. This is a little bit intricate, especially if you haven't been uh, consistently coming and listening to all of this. One of the reasons I'm doing a lot of review because uh, it pulls together these strands of these Old Testament passages And we live in an era today, number one, a lot of people just don't understand the Old Testament. That's why we have a couple of different series for uh, surveys of the Old Testament that are up on the website. But to get down into these backgrounds that everything Jesus is doing in the, that's recorded in the scripture is related to fulfillment of so many different messianic promises and prophecies and uh, to set the stage for what is coming. God just doesn't haphazardly uh, do things. And so when we connect the dots on these passages we're looking at, uh, and there's several more I could pull in but won't for the sake of time, it, it reveals for us that what you and I are part of as the church, as the body of Christ, this this corporate entity, is something that is uh, unique in all of history, 
And we are distinctive because we are identified so closely with Christ. We are called the body of Christ that is being built by God the Holy Spirit. We are uh, called the bride of Christ, which is a very high honor indeed. And that when our Lord does come back and establish his kingdom, we will be ruling and reigning with him. Now, maybe it hasn't occurred to you yet, but one of the questions you should be asking yourself as a believer is, if I'm going to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom, how do I prepare for that? Well, you prepare for that by doing what you're doing here this morning, and that is studying the Word, learning about God, learning uh, all of His attributes, learning His plans and His purposes, developing that capacity, that spiritual capacity that forms the foundation of what we will be in eternity. And this is our preparation. This is, as it were, boot camp as we get ready to go into our our future uh, roles and responsibilities uh, in the kingdom. And that's what is setting the, uh, the, the broader framework as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, because in that first part of this section, uh, there was the emphasis on the unity, that what we have in common in the body of Christ. The shift occurs here in this second part is what we have distinctively for each of us, that this grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he begins to build this with the uh, quote from Psalm uh, um, uh, Psalm 68, 18, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, gave gifts to men, and then he begins to explain that. But when you go back to the Old Testament passage at Psalm 68, 18, and 19, When we read that and studied that, we saw that this wasn't a predictive prophecy. It was a psalm of praise directed to to God as, um, as there was this procession to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is... Uh, uh, which is the emblem of God's presence. That's his throne on earth. He is enthroned between the cherubs on the top of the mercy seat, on the cover of the ark. And that David is bringing this procession into Jerusalem, up onto the Temple Mount, which will be the future home of the temple. And all of this is depicted here. It is a, a psalm of thanksgiving and victory over uh, the defeat of the Canaanites and establishing this kingdom of Judah under uh, King David. And th- this took a period of about 400 years, did not happen overnight. And so uh, there's differences because when Paul uh, quotes from this, he modifies it under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit and applies it. He's not saying it's a fulfilled prophecy, but he is applying it, this historical event, to uh, what, it, what Christ has accomplished in the ascension is analogous to what God had done in the Old Testament because in the passages that we looked at 
uh, we saw this, that, that this is a triumph of Christ in his humanity, and he's elevated to the right hand of the Father uh, in authority over the uh, various uh, angelic uh, powers. The procession ideas seen a few verses later in Psalm 68:24, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. So this is pictured in the ascension of Christ. And so there's other passages in the Old Testament that connect the dots here. And we've looked at five, or we're looking at five messianic psalms. We've looked at Psalm 68, 18 in its context. We've looked last week at the first part of Psalm 110. We'll finish that today. And then we're going to also this morning connect the dots of Psalm 110 to Psalm 2 and then Daniel 7. Uh, Psalm 8, we've touched on. That's pretty much all we're going to do. This is, the, again, talking about the Son of Man who is elevated higher than the angels. And then just roughly talk about uh, Psalm 89 in relation to the Davidic covenant. So that all ties together with what Christ is doing right now. We'll talk some about the Son of David, Son of Man terms this morning. Also, Son of God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords are very much a part of our understanding here. Uh, the Davidic Covenant is the foundation for understanding all of the above. We'll touch on that this morning, as well as the Melchizedekian priesthood and the fulfillment of Christ. So what you see is a lot of this is coming together uh, in our study this, this morning. So the order of events, just to remind you of what happened is that there is the ascension of Christ, which is described in uh, Luke. Uh, it is also described by Luke in Acts chapter 1, and it's touched on in other passages. But it is derived from Psalm 68, 18 as the analogy that's quoted in Ephesians 4, 7 to 8. The destination of the ascension is the throne of God, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father on his Father's throne, not on his throne, Revelation 3.21 and Psalm 110.1. There as he is seated, when you look at Psalm 2 and you look at Psalm 10, he is expected to ask for his kingdom, but not right away. So there is a delay as he is seated, a position of passivity waiting to be given his kingdom. And Psalm 2 will talk about, the the Father will say, ask and I will give you your inheritance. In Daniel 7.14, as we go there this morning, we will see that the response of God the Father is to give him his kingdom, and then he will come to the earth and take the kingdom. He returns to the earth and defeats the kings of the earth. That's alluded to in Psalm 110.3. It's alluded to it's specifically in Psalm 2.9 and described in Revelation 19.19-21. 19, 19 And then he establishes his rule upon the earth, Revelation 20. And we could add uh, Psalm 98, which we read this morning to that, Psalm 96 and Psalm 98, as well as some others. 
So Jesus is taken up and received into a cloud in that event of the ascension in Acts uh, 1.9. And in the ascension, he is said to have passed through the heavens. Hebrews 4.14 connects this high priestly ministry to what is going on as he passes through the heavens uh, to the throne room of God. So that when we come to Psalm 110, we looked at last time, we saw that the significance of Psalm 110 was that its importance is that first verse that uh, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. There are five things that we'll review that were brought out in that psalm. We'll finish talking about those this morning. And then we'll go to Psalm 2 and the rebellion against God and the Messiah. And then God the Father will give authority to the Messiah to suppress this human rebellion against God and tells the Messianic king to ask, and he will give him the kingdom. So we looked at five things. We started looking at these last time, that the descendant, the one who is David's Lord, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, that is a descendant of David, and that is a reference to the Messiah, that this Messiah is exalted to the right hand of God. The issue of sitting on someone's right hand is this is a position of honor, a position of authority, a position of significance, and that he is in a position of being seated, not in a position of standing ready to assault or to establish his kingdom. He is waiting for the right time. And that in the second verse, he will be given authority and power to destroy his enemies. And we looked at that last time, and we'll briefly review it in a minute. Then in verse 4, he is said to be the priest king, And then in verses 3, 5, and 6, he goes forth in battle in the last days uh, to do battle. So all of this connects. Pointed out last time in Psalm 107, 108, and 109, there is a cry for deliverance from Israel. In the Psalms that follow Psalm 110, there's praise for deliverance. Sandwiched between them is Psalm 110, uh, where... It talks about the deliverance that is provided by the Messiah and that he is the messianic deliverer. So there are these three sections to Psalm 110. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father where he will await the defeat of his enemies. I'll make your enemies your footstool. And then he will establish his kingdom. And the second hinge verse is Psalm 110.4 that he is going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's central to this whole psalm is that priestly ministry, which he has today. And then at the end, Yahweh will give the Messianic king a mighty and glorious victory over his uh, enemies. So we looked at that first verse, the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord is in caps, indicating that's a translation of Yahweh, the personal name of God. And the second word is Adonai, which means my Lord. It is a term used to want a person that is in authority 
over the person who is using the term. And so David, who is a, the king over Israel at one of the greatest, um, uh, greatest extent of the Jewish kingdom in the Old Testament, who's over David? Well, no human being is over David, so the only one he would call my Lord would be uh, would be uh, a God, would be God who is divine over him. And so it indicates these two persons. Now, we look at Psalm 110, we're going to see two persons. When we go to Psalm 2, we're going to look at two persons. When you read them and you read these kind of statements in the Psalms, you need to ask yourself, well, who's talking, who's speaking, who's this speaker, and who's that speaker? So the first Lord we identify as God the Father, the my Lord who sits at his right hand is the is God the Son at the time of the ascension. And the Father says, sit there until I make your enemies your footstool. The I clearly is God the Father, and it shows that the Son is waiting for the Father to work out the details of his plan, which will culminate in the defeat of his enemies. That hasn't happened yet. We live in a fallen, corrupt world, a world that is portrayed as in rebellion against God in the beginning of Psalm 2, which we'll look at in a minute. And for most of us, we want, and all of us have thought this in the last two years, I just want things to get back to normal. There's no normal since Eve took a bite of the fruit. We live in an abnormal world. Sometimes it's more abnormal than other times, but we are living in a time that very likely God is preparing things for the end-time events. Now, that doesn't mean the rapture is going to be next week, next month, that the rapture is going to be in the next decade or even in our lifetimes. We just don't know. We always, there have been generations that have looked at the events going on and said, Jesus is going to come in my lifetime. Uh, Those who were alive at the time of Napoleon were certain that Napoleon was the Antichrist. Then they were certain that Bismarck was the Antichrist. Later they they thought the Kaiser was the Antichrist, and then Hitler was the Antichrist, and then Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. And that's possible because in every generation... Satan has to have a candidate for the Antichrist that he's preparing because he doesn't know when the rapture is going to occur any more than you and I do. So we can always look out on the horizon and say, this could be that, that could be this, Jesus is coming tomorrow, isn't it great? And then, you know, five years later, well, I guess I was off. Uh, It can look like that a lot of times, so we have to be careful the, the old saying that we live each day as if Jesus is coming back in the next hour, but we plan as if he's not coming back for another hundred years. We have to do both. So in this statement we saw last time, this is a an oracle, a prophetic statement that is being said by the Lord, and that it is a term that indicates... Um, the Adonai there is a term that indicates the deity of the one he is, to, uh, the one to whom he is speaking. And if you look down in Psalm 110.5, we, 
we have the other form of this word, because there's debate over this first form, and you can see the ending is just a different vowel. Um, but the A-Y ending is used in verse 5, which is clearly referring back to the one uh, who is the Lord, uh, the second Lord mentioned in Psalm 110.1, which just affirms to us that both of these are divine. That there are at more, there's more than one person in the Godhead. And that's clear in the Old Testament. So, uh, the order is from the Father to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. And this is to terminate, the sitting will terminate when he's ready to make his enemies his footstool. And the idea of a footstool is that they are being made to uh, be under your authority to be suppressed and defeated by someone. So the Messianic king is fully divine. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's not on his own throne, and he is sitting there to await victory. In Psalm 2, we saw that Yahweh promises that he will give him the opportunity to rule in the midst of his enemies. When Christ returns at the second coming, he's coming in the midst of his enemies, and he will defeat them. Psalm 110, verse 3, we saw last time, this last part of it is badly translated. It's very difficult. But the idea is best expressed as from the womb of the dawn, indicating from eternity past, I have begotten you. So this is a verse that emphasizes the eternal begottenness of the Son. Begotten is a term that emphasizes uh, the second person's eternal relationship with the Father. He's not born. He's not created. This language was uh, reflected in the Nicene uh, Council in 325 A.D., and I keep reading this quote from Alan Ross. It's so perceptive. The verb begotten is in its literal sense refers to a child who shares the nature of his father, as opposed to words like made, born, created. To describe Jesus as begotten indicates that he has the nature of the father. We have this verb again in uh, Psalm 2. So that's why I'm reviewing it. So when we get there, it's clear. To describe Jesus as begotten indicates that he has the nature of the Father. That is, he is divine and eternal. And if he is eternal, then begotten refers to nature and not a beginning. The description is figurative. This is why the Nicene Creed clarifies the point that Jesus is begotten and not made in the language of the creed. When Scripture uses begotten in that sense, the expression includes only monogenes, translated the only begotten in John 3.16 and other passages. There's only one person who shares the divine nature of the Father, and that's Jesus Christ. So Hebrews 10 quotes this, uh, or refers to this, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father, from that time waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. 
That's what's happening right now. And in that, as we'll see in the next verse in Psalm 110.4, he is our high priest. That is significant for the spiritual development and maturation of church-age believers. The Lord has sworn, verse 4 says, and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was the priest king of Salem, which was just a very small city. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it just hardly even covered that area of what they refer to as David's city, which takes us about 10 minutes to walk from one end to the other, unless you go down through Hezekiah's tunnel. And that... um, This was the city of the Jebusites, and it was called Salem. Later it's called Jebus for the Jebusites who lived there, Canaanite group. But the leader is the priest king Melchizedek. It's really a title. Melchi is king, and Zedek is righteousness. So Melchizedek, he's the king of righteousness. And the Jewish legend is that Melchizedek was really Shem one of the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. That might be true. And uh, the reason you can say it's true is because Shem lived an extremely long time. He lived over 600 years, I believe, and he would still be alive at the time of Abraham. He would not have died according to a strict chronology and using the genealogies. He would not have died until Abraham was in his, I think, around 160 or 165, something of that nature. And if that is true, notice it's conditional, we can't say dogmatically, then what we see when when Abraham defeats the armies of the kings of 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 Babylon and basically that area that come into the area of uh, Syria, Palestine, and they defeat the cities of the plains, uh, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities, and they take captives and they take plunder, and Abraham gets all of his men together who are a private army, and they go after them and defeat them. That when he comes back to Salem, he gives 10% of the spoil, which is really the booty that was and the plunder that was taken from all of these cities and towns. Uh, he gives 10% to, to Melchizedek as a tribute to God, as a thanksgiving offering for God giving him the victory. And so Melchizedek, though, sets the pattern of a priest king, whereas Israel has a Levitical priesthood. And so to be a priest in Israel, you had to be a descendant from the line of Levi. But this is a different order. It is a priest king that is an autonomous position. And so in these verses, God is promising a future royal high priest in the first part of the verse, and that this will be an everlasting priest. You are a priest forever. So that can't be referring to one who is a mortal human being. So this sets, uh, begins to set the stage, and then in the remainder of this uh, psalm, you see the defeat of the enemies uh, played out. In verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. Well, the Lord there is Adonai, 
which refers back to the second personage in, uh, in the first verse. So the Lord is at your right hand. Whose right hand? The right hand of the Father. He said, sit at my right hand. So you have the one on the throne and the one on the right hand, and the one at the right hand is uh, Adonai, and your refers to God the Father. The he refers to <coughs> refers to the Lord, the Messiah. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. There he shall lift up the head, which he'll lift up his head. It's a picture of being refreshed after the battle. But those last three verses tell us that he will come and he will defeat the kings. He will defeat the kings of the nations in verse 6. He will execute the heads of many countries, the last part of verse 6. So all of this is ties it to Psalm 2. So what we see in conclusion to um, Psalm 110 is that during this intervening period, connecting it back to, Psalm, uh, to Ephesians 2.7, we are seated with him. We have, remember, we have been made alive together with him. We have been raised together, and we have been seated together with him in the heavenlies. So that's our legal position. We are identified with the one who is at the right hand of the Father, seated and waiting. So we are waiting the giving of the kingdom to the Messiah. So that tells us we're not in this some form of amillennialism, which dominates Presbyterian theology and much other theology, Roman Catholic theology, that there's no literal future messianic kingdom on the earth, that we're all part of some spiritual form of the kingdom now, and so we're just waiting for Jesus to come back, and that will end everything. That's the amillennial position. Second point I want to make is that, like him, our role is related to our royal priesthood in him. He is our high priest. We are all believer priests. So we are to carry out that priestly role by growing to spiritual maturity and understanding what God has provided for us because we are living today in light of eternity in preparation for our future role to rule and reign with Christ when he comes in his kingdom. So we are to be involved in carrying out the great commission to uh, evangelize, to train, to teach, and prepare others to engage in ministry of prayer and all of the different one another passages in the scripture, pray for one another, teach one another, encourage one another. Uh, there's about eight or nine of those one another ministries that we're to engage in in the church. So we have to talk about this battle that's going to come up. Psalm 92, verse 9 talks about this. says, For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. Some of us are saying, well, when is he going to get about doing that? We're waiting. Uh, All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. Well, God continues to wait because he desires for as many as possible to be saved. Because once he starts 
the time clock again, everything's going to run out in about in seven years of the tribulation, and then Christ comes back and destroys the enemy. So he is awaiting the salvation of as many as possible. Psalm 2-2 is where we're going to go from here, so you might as well turn to Psalm 2, where we read that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So we have these two same personages here that we have in Psalm 110.1. You have the Lord, Yahweh, and in Psalm 110.1, it is my Lord, but here it is his anointed, his Mashiach. Messiah means the anointed one. So again, we see the order of events. We've gone through the ascension. We've looked at the session, Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father on the Father's throne, according to Revelation 3.21 and Psalm 110.1. And then he is to wait for the kingdom, and we get that from Psalm 2.8. And then we'll go to Psalm uh, 7.14. So Hebrews 10.12 and 13 tells us, Uh, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for from that time onward until his enemies uh, be made his footstool. Acts 2.30. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to sit one of his descendants on his throne, referring to David and, and the prophecy of Psalm 110, um, that David understood that one of his descendants would be on his throne, on the Father's throne. Acts 2.34, For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. What I'm pointing out is Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament, cited again and again and again because it's so central to us understanding what is happening now why Jesus isn't coming back yet, and what is going to happen when he comes. And in Ephesians, it helps us to understand the significance of the formation of his body, the church. So we come to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is uh, one of the most significant passages quoted in the New Testament next to only Psalm 110. When I was in seminary, of course, when you start seminary, you don't know a lot of these things. And when I was, um, uh, I guess I was in my third year, we had to take a theology course, Christology, Pneumatology, and Ecclesiology. And I was sitting down on the front row right in front of the professor, and sitting on my right hand was Tommy Ice. Tommy had to sit there. We were to the left of the center aisle, and he had to be able to access the, the tape recorder to turn things off and on and control, control that. We loved that class. It was one of the best classes we had because the professor at that time was teaching exegetically Christology, not just going through it from a top-down systematic theology way, but going through all of these verses to show how they all connected to one another. And that's how you really build your understanding, your theology, is from the bottom up. 
And this was just just so tremendous. And he took us through Psalm 2, and every place Psalm 2 was used in the New Testament, and then through Psalm 110, and every place that that was used in the New Testament. And, you know, it would, you, know you just get it rapid fire, and it take, you're, you've got to memorize it for a test. But over the years, it's just phenomenal how, how significant this is and how these two Psalms are so central to the, to the New Testament. And so if you break down the outline here that you can um, use for Psalm 2, it's not attributed to David, but it is assumed that this, both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are written by David and that they are placed intentionally at the head of the Psalter uh, because, and that they are connected to one another. And I'm not going to go into those details right now. But Psalm 2 is talking about an event that will take place in the future. The first three verses are verses that talk about the human rebellion against the, um, the Lord and against his Messiah. It is a picture of globalism, a picture of internationalism, which we are moving to uh, with, with great velocity in our age. And this is the attempt by Satan to reverse what God did at the Tower of Babel. And it has uh, always uh, been Satan's uh, strategy to reverse Babel so that he can, through a one-rule leader, rule the earth. And that is what God will allow him to do during the future tribulation period. We won't be there. We will have been raptured to be with the Lord in the air but this is what will happen uh, afterward. And so we see in these first, first three uh, verses this emphasis on the kings of the earth plotting this rebellion against the Lord and his Messiah. Then in verses 4 through 6 and 7 through 9, we see the response and the reaction of God and his Messiah to these puny little human kings who wish to overthrow him and to destroy uh, his rule. And in those verses we read, he who sits in the heavens. Who's that? Sitting on the throne. Who is he who sits in the heavens? Shall laugh. We're going to see that's God. That's God the Father. The Lord shall hold them in derision. See, in the parallelism, you realize that that he who sits in the heavens is Yahweh. That's referring to God the Father. And then in verse 5 says, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep pleasure. We come to understand who that describes in verse 6, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Who's the I? The I is God the Father. My king is the Messiah. And he is going to set him literally on his throne on Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over his his kingdom. So that is the response of God to their ridiculous little plan. And then he is recounting um, his claims to the throne, the Messiah's claims to the throne. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, now who's speaking here? See, you've got a change of person speaking here. Before it was the Father, Yahweh, who's speaking. Now he's going to say, Yahweh said to me. Who's the me? The me's the son. 
So he says, I will declare the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. So that today is a long day. That's eternity because the son is the eternally begotten one of the father. And what the Lord Yahweh says to him is, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. See, that hasn't happened yet. We live in the devil's world. The devil is the prince of the power of the air. The devil is the god of this age. The devil is the one who offered the kingdoms to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, in the uh, uh, third temptation, and Jesus didn't say, oh, you're not authorized to do that. You don't own the kingdoms. Jesus didn't question it. He told them, don't tempt the Lord your God. Because Satan has been in control of the kingdoms on this earth since Eve and Adam ate the fruit. And with that fall, he became the king of the earth, whereas prior to that, Adam was the king of the earth as the vice regent of God the Father. But the Messiah will come as the king. He has the right to the throne, and uh, the Father then says, in verse 9, it's the Father now speaking. He says, you, talking to the Messiah, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So we see in this basic outline, this is what's called the chiasm. So 4 through 6 and 7 through 9 are the focal point, the center of this particular psalm. And it the whole focus is on how... Yahweh and his anointed are going to defeat and going to destroy this rebellion of the kings of the earth. And we see us pushing to that all the time. The level of internationalism today uh, due to the this COVID pandemic is beyond anything we could have imagined two years ago. And it's not going away. And it's not lightening up. And uh, we often joke, well, how many more variants are there going to be? Are we going to get to triple omega with our 375th booster shot? <laughs> Who knows? But the focal point is to break down these national barriers and national distinctions and so that the kings of the earth can gain more and more power. And how long that will go, how long this will take, we don't know. So when we come to Psalm, uh, to what we see here in Psalm 2-4, we read, uh, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord, that's Adonai, shall hold them in derision. That's the same word we saw in Psalm 110-1. The Lord Yahweh said to my Lord Adonai. So the Lord is he who sits in the heavens laughing, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Uh, God is ridiculing and mocking and making fun of the kings of the earth. So that doesn't sound too politically correct, does it? But see, when you're God and you're dealing with rebels, which is the problem, and remember, we're on God's side, so when we're looking at the world today, we're looking at the, these rebels if God can laugh and deride and make fun of them and mock them, why can't we? Oh, it's not politically correct. Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, yeah? 
Jesus did it all the time. He didn't do it to those who were not in rebellion against him. He was the one who was constantly confronting and putting down and uh, uh, showing no respect whatsoever for the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had taken up sides and they were against him. They are the ones who committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But to those who were sinners like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and those who were not caught up in the legalism and the arrogance of the religious leaders, those Jesus didn't come and, and ridicule them and make fun of them and he wasn't hostile to them. He reached out to them in grace and in love and he's offering salvation to them. Now, salvation was offered to the others, but because they were set in arrogance, they were they were rejecting, rejecting him. There's an order here that, that is followed chronologically that the one who is sitting in the heavens is laughing at these kings of the earth who have brought this rebellion against him. And so we have a chronological note at the end of verse 5. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. So this is a process. It hasn't happened yet. It will happen towards the end of the tribulation period. And the Father says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So the I here is the Father, the one who is speaking, and the king is the Messiah. And they are dealing with these kings of the earth back in verse 2 and verse 3 who have set themselves, are counseling together, there is an international conspiracy at this time. Now, we're all familiar with all kinds of conspiracy theories. Some of them don't make any sense. Some of them might make sense. But remember, there is only one grand conspirator, and that is Satan. And he's been involved in a grand conspiracy and trying to manipulate anybody he can manipulate to bring about what he wants to do. So there's always a thousand conspiracies. So if you're prone to conspiracy theories, forget it. There is one. It, it, none of them will happen until the Lord lifts the restrainer. So it doesn't matter how much they come up with this or with that. And like I said earlier, you can point at any time to a hundred or a thousand different groups that could play that role. All through history, there have been those who Satan had ready to go. So don't get distracted by that stuff. Those are the waves. Keep your focus on the Lord. Keep your focus on your primary mission as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to grow and mature and to carry out the mission that God has given you. And don't spend all kinds of time surfing the Internet to try to put all this stuff together. That's not your job. It's going to happen when the Lord says it can happen, and it's not going to happen until then, and until then, it's just a distraction. And they want to destroy God. Well, of course they do. They've been wanting to do that since before the flood. They wanted to do that at the Tower of Babel. They've been trying to do that with all forms of anti-Semitism through history. But the Jewish people are still here, and God still has a plan. These kings of the earth are portrayed in Revelation 6.15 and 6.16 as the kings of the earth, the mighty men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, 
and they are hiding themselves during those first series of seal judgments, and they cry out, fall on us to the rocks. They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Who's that? That's the Father. And from the wrath of the Lamb. Who's that? That's the Son. So keep having these two same personages show up in all of these passages. It's the Son of God, as Proverbs 35 says, what is his name and what is his son's name? Now, we just got a couple of minutes left, but I want to hit this and we'll start with it in review. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Because what is happening here in Psalm 2 is that in verse 8, the father says to the son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So the son is seated at the right hand, and it comes to the point that at the time of this rebellion of these kings, God says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. We see this pictured in the vision Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. The first part of it portrays the same kingdoms that are part of that statue of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. But I just want to point us to the uh, last part of this vision in verse 9. Daniel says, uh, and this is at the end times in the time of the power of the little horn, which is the Antichrist, Daniel says, and he's looking into the heavens, he says, I watched till the thrones were put in place. This is like Revelation 4 and 5, the thrones of the 24 elders around the throne of God. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is seated on the throne. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne like a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. That's like the throne of God's depicted in Ezekiel. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And then verse 11, the scene shifts to the earth. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain. So the beast is the Antichrist. So now the beast is slain. It's the end of the seven-year tribulation. The beast is slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, that's the other kings of the earth, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the chariots of heaven. He's not coming to the earth. He's coming to the throne of God, the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, that is, the angels escorting him to the throne of the Father. Then to him, notice the then. This is at the end. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? Because the dominion had to first be taken away from the beast before it could be given to the Son. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not just for a thousand years. That's just phase one. It's an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one is the one that will not be destroyed. So we'll start there next time, but that puts it together because what is happening in the session is that he's preparing us as this unique group of believers in all of history for our future role because we will be coming with him at the second coming, and when he establishes that kingdom, we will be ruling and reigning with him. But this dominion is not taken away from Satan or the Antichrist until right before Jesus returns at the second coming. We're a long way from that, at least seven years. So until then, we're waiting with the Lord, but we're carrying out our roles related to his high priesthood and not in regard to his conquering and taking dominion. And there's a whole group of Christians today into dominion theology trying to somehow bring in the kingdom. And that's such a great distraction. But we'll talk about those things uh, next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon them and to realize what is being accomplished in this time period, in this church age, which is why so many have recognized that this church age is just... Uh, on the one hand, it is an intensified time in the angelic rebellion, but on the other time, it is a glorious time because you are calling out a unique people for yourself that are the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, who will reign with Christ in the kingdom, and it is our responsibility to prepare for that now. Father, we pray for any who is listening to this uh, this morning, either here or on the Internet some later time that they would understand that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. He came to provide salvation, not to judge, but to save. And he will come back in the future for judgment. And those who come with him are those who have responded to the gospel to be saved and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Father, we pray for us that we might recognize our high calling in Christ and that we might be uh, responsible in fulfilling the mission you have given us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is Joy to the World. Joy to the World, as I said earlier, was written by Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts is the father of modern hymnody. He patterned what he was doing after what is done in the Psalms. And that is so important to understand because he wasn't creating necessarily a totally different kind of music. And when he writes this, he is reflecting on Psalm 98. And if I can find the page, I want to read that to you. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. See, this is written, this looks forward to that time when Christ comes back, as we just read, and establishes that kingdom. 
For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him, past tense, have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. He's establishing their kingdom. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And what's the response? Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar. All of nature gets involved in all of this. Why? Verse 9, he's coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. So Watts writes, joy to the world. Notice the tense of the next verb. The Lord is come. When a present tense is used like that, it's usually talking about a future event. He doesn't say the Lord has come. He's not talking about the first coming. He's talking about the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king, that is, it, 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 the rest of you read, and, and as we sing it, think about some of the words. They don't relate to what happened at the first coming. A lot of people think he was amillennial. He was a premillennialist. He is writing about the second coming of Christ, but it has been adopted as a Christmas song. But when we sing it, we should think knowledgeably that this is talking about his what we're looking forward to, and that is his second coming. So let's stand together and sing Joy to the World, number 125, and then uh, I'm going to ask uh, Greg Freehoff to please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. <laughs>